When we look to the future, we can be filled with apprehension. Is there going to be hyperinflation? Will there be a war over Taiwan? Are the COVID restrictions ever going to end? All these thoughts are raging through people's minds. And the problem with many of our worrying and our fretting is that it assumes that God isn't in control and that his church will ultimately prevail. Christianity is a religion of world conquest. Not conquest at the end of a sword, but the conquest at the end of men and women proclaiming the truth of God to the world and boldly building up their communities in love. Well, today we're going to be looking at Genesis 24. In particular, we're going to be looking at the ways that Abraham prepared his household for the future. We will see how he prioritized the plans and purposes of God and built and established his household in love. And I've got three points that I want to bring uh, to the front with this. And number one, my first point is looking to the future. My second point is pursuing the future. And my third point is establishing the future. All for the glory of God. So let's start reading. We're going to be in Genesis 24 verses 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to go with me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So my first point, looking to the future for the glory of God. Uh, Last week we saw a funeral and this week we're going to see a marriage. Uh, Sarah's funeral was a sad end to an amazing story of God's faithfulness and it's marked the end of an era. Now we are seeing here a transitional story. The focus is going to come off Abraham and now the focus is going to be on his son Isaac. We're going to be moving on from the parents to the children. And Isaac's going to become the focus. Just as one generation passes away, another generation comes. And Abraham knows his time is coming to an end. He's old, he's well advanced in years, and he's looking now to the future. What will become of his son Isaac? What kind of future will Abraham pass on to his son? Isaac is unmarried. He's perhaps one of Canaan's most eligible bachelors, a prince, an inheritor, to a large fortune and the inheritor of God's most holy covenant that he made with Abraham. And the local women knew it. And it's more than likely that Abraham would have been getting offers and propositions for marital alliances between huge and large households and families. But Abraham was adamant that that would never happen. His son would not marry a daughter of Canaan. For he had lived with the Canaanites for countless decades and he has seen them slowly spiraling into more and more wickedness, greater and greater depravity. And he's also aware of God's promise because in God's promise, the land of Canaan is going to be given to Abraham and his descendants. So he knows that the time is ticking for the Canaanites. 
He knows that this land will be given to Isaac and he doesn't want to tie up the fate of his son with the fate of the Canaanites. And so by, by pursuing a marital relationship back in his homeland, he is um, ensuring that his son would no longer be ensnared and kept with the same disaster that the Canaanites are rapidly heading towards. And parents can learn a thing or two from Abraham. Uh, parents are not just custodians of little people, but custodians of eternal souls. Parents are preparing their children for eternity and should take very careful consideration into the eternal welfare of their children. By grace, our children will escape the corruption of this world and cling fast to Jesus. But a foolish parent will allow their children to become entangled and overcome by the world. 2 Peter 2.20 For if, after they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Interesting passage there. God is going to hold us to account for the knowledge that we have of Jesus. And if we are overcome by the world, then we prove to be rocky or thorny soil. For a Christian kid raised in a Christian household, Knowing the truth about Jesus and then deciding that you're going to walk away is a scary place to be. And Abraham knows that Isaac must marry a woman who is on board with the mission of God. And to accomplish this, he recruits his most trusted servant. Most likely the Eliezer of Damascus, this guy that we saw all the way back in Genesis 15 too. And Abraham was going to send his servant on a massive task on this huge journey back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. And under no circumstances can Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. He makes Eliezer put his hands under his thigh and make an oath. You might be thinking, why under the thigh? Why is this oath underneath Abraham's thigh? And the oath was made under the thigh to highlight the vulnerability and trust made with this kind of oath. No one likes someone touching their inner thigh, do they? It's a very vulnerable, intimate place. And in the Bible, anything below the shoulders and above the knees was considered your nakedness. It was considered shameful for anyone to touch it or to see it. And this was the mainstream view of the church until up about 50 years ago. Uh, and it was the standard view of Christian modesty. And it definitely makes you look at all the, the dudes in their uh, short footy shorts a little differently, doesn't it? Well, here in this oath, Abraham says, go to Nahor, find a wife from my people. Under no circumstance can you bring Isaac back there because the future of Abraham's descendants lies in this land of Canaan. And this is where God said they needed to be. And this is where the promise is made. And like Abraham, we must be where God has called us to be. We cannot go back. We cannot go back to our former life. We cannot go back to our former ways. Our future and our hope is pressing onwards and pressing further up and further into God's designs. We must stay where God would have us and we must stay with God's people. And Abraham is so confident that he would bless the journey that he declares that an angel is going to go ahead and prepare the way. Only one thing. This is a lot to ask for a young lady. This is a lot to ask for a young lady to do. They've got, she's got to leave her family. She's got to leave her homeland, her friends to marry a guy that she's never met. 
And that doesn't sound like a winning strategy. That doesn't sound like a plan that's going to work out in the end. And the servant says as much to Abraham, what if she doesn't want to come? I mean, it's highly likely that she's not going to want to come. And realize that not many women are going to jump at that, no matter how rich, no matter how wealthy your son is, no matter how well known he is. And Abraham has been in positions like this before. He knows what it's like to be up against all the odds, to be resting in the promises and and resting your faith in the promises of God. And if she doesn't come, Abraham says to the servant, you will be free from this oath. But Abraham knows, of course, God is going to provide. He's looking to the future for God's glory. God would give Abraham's plan success, not because it necessarily originated with Abraham, but it was firmly rooted in the plans of God himself. We don't have the right to declare that angels are going to give any of our plans um, success. But if our plans are from the promises of God, then we can know that God will provide a way for them to come into reality. And this is what faith is, trusting God that he will bring his plans to reality. And for many of us, parents or not, single or unmarried, young or old, when we look to the future, what is our plan? What is our legacy? What are we leaving behind? What will we pass on? Are we making plans that are going to ensnare others into the cares and worries of this world? Are we making plans that will effectively marry our friends or loved ones or children to the decaying world around us? Are we hitching our wagon to the dying Canaanites who will fall under God's judgment? Press further up and further into God's kingdom. Reside with his people. Whether you are in a stage of planning for your children or starting to have children, planning for yourself, or the the ship has sailed for you on children, wherever you are, when you know where God is directing you, when you know where to look, you must pursue that path for God's glory. And that brings me to my second point. Pursuing the future for God's glory. Let's keep reading from verse 10. Big chunk of a passage. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The men gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold wing, weighing a half shekel, 
and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forgotten his, forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my sons from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not be willing, will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw from your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with a water jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, If you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right or to the left. Eliezer proves himself in here, the Abraham servant, to be a faithful and capable man, taking many camels to uh, bring back a whole entourage from this place if need be. He takes choice gifts and he makes this grueling um, and dangerous trek back to the region of Mesopotamia, the journey of Abraham in reverse. And at this time in history, Mesopotamia was the culturally dominant and technologically developed area in the whole world. There were many bandits and thieves along the way, and it takes a manly sort of guy to undertake this journey. And perhaps even braver would be the woman who will have to go back with him. He makes it to Nahor safe and sound, and 
He prays and he asks for the Lord to give him a sign for who to approach. And it's worthy just noting how godly and God-honoring the members of Abraham's household are. Eliezer is from Damascus. He isn't He isn't a Hebrew, he's not from Abraham's lineage, and yet he has adopted the God of his master, and he believes and trusts in the God of Abraham. And it's a testament to the goodness of God in forming this wonderful community that is springing up in the world, a new kind of community that shows the world what it's like to return to God. And he wants the woman whom he asks to give give him a drink to be a conscientious person, He wants her to be a woman of notable character who thinks more about, more than about just herself. And if she offers to give his camels a drink of water, well, then she'll be the one. Proverbs 19, 14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. The servant knows that the right woman for Isaac has to come from the Lord. And we are introduced to this woman named Rebecca. Great name. She is indeed a virtuous woman. Young, beautiful, unmarried, perfect. She offers to water his camels and the servant knows that God has answered his prayers. And he puts a ring of gold in her nose. He gives her gold bracelets, precious, uh, very expensive items of jewelry. And... This would have immediately been recognized as a marriage proposal, but not to the servant. But the servant is alone. So who is this marriage proposal to? And immediately the servant wants to speak to the family. And at this moment, he worships God from verse 26. It says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. When we pursue God's glory in the here and now and put his kingdom first above all else, God gives us blessing and success. Often it can come with great difficulty and danger, with great suffering and great trial. Just like Eliezer might seem that we have to cross a great wilderness and desert to reach the goals that God has for us and pass through many dangers. But God remains faithful to his promises and to his words. And our blessing comes through trial and suffering. But when we trust in God and we worship him and trust in him, we can know that he is good and that he will prosper us in our way. Not necessarily prospering us in the sense that we're going to get uh, material possessions and we're going to be wealthy, but rather that God will give more to us to be faithful with when we prove ourselves to be faithful to Him. And if you feel like God isn't acting powerfully in your life, that God isn't doing much in your life and you aren't really changing and nothing was really going on, perhaps you're not even willing to get off the couch. Because if you want to see God do amazing things... You've got to be willing to saddle up 10 camels and go off into the wilderness. You've got to be willing to take risks. You've got to be willing to delve into danger if you want to see God powerfully show up. Pursue God's kingdom, then you will see God's mighty hand. But while you are sitting on the couch, you will not see God come through. If anything, he will come through in a rebuke. And so Rebecca runs off, tells her mother's household, And it's interesting that Rebecca goes first to the women of her house. These are the people she spent the most time with and undoubtedly she wanted their opinion. 
Perhaps they were excited for her. Perhaps they were apprehensive and worried. But Rebecca's brother Laban, we're going to see this guy again, gives Eliezer a massive reception. Hospitality as renowned as Abraham himself. And they learn what happened to Abraham. They would have known about him. He would have been a man of honor and respect, but he was a man who left chasing after the dream of his God. And you must remember that these people, including Rebecca, they're still pagans, but they recognize the power of God in Abraham's life. They recognize that Abraham was onto something and he recounts the entire journey. We, as we were reading through it, the servant tells him again of everything that has happened and how he came to realize that Rebecca was chosen by God. And he asked them in no uncertain terms if they were willing to part with their beloved daughter and allow Rebecca to marry Isaac. Now, marriage back in these days was a whole family affair. It was not as uh, simple and isolated as our culture makes it out to be. It's not a matter of boy meets girl, boy likes girl, boy asks girl to get married, and then they get married. Families are involved. Gifts are exchanged. Plans are made. And the reason this is the case is because marriage is not just the merging of two individuals, but two families. And whoever your children marry, your stuff is going to get passed on down to that person. So parents uh, had an interest, a vested interest in the people that their children would marry. And I'm not advocating that we go back to this ancient practice of marriage, but families most certainly should be more involved in the marriage of their children today than uh, they currently are. And before you react, hear me out. I reckon this should primarily happen by parents getting to know other parents early in their children's lives. So before marriage is even on the cards, forming strong ties and relationships with families with similar aged children of the opposite gender can help this happen organically over time. You don't want to find your child of age for marriage and thrown out into the wilderness to find a husband or wife. And this means you have to be planning at least 10 years ahead of time. Very subtly, it has to be subtle because your children will notice it, subtly nudge your children in the right direction towards godly prospects. This also means that you should take care that your children are godly because godly parents are not going to let their children marry your children if your children are out of control and they don't know where your children are at in their relationship with Jesus. Just as Abraham took great care to see that his son was married and married well, we should take great care early on. Now, children today are quick to resent any interference from parents, which is why I suggest doing this subtly and early. But the more, the more organically this happens, the better. And so pursue the future for God's glory. How can you contribute to the growth of a godly community? Maybe you aren't a parent. Maybe you're more like this godly servant, Eliezer. Perhaps the prospect of marriage is not on the cards for you now, or perhaps it's not likely to happen at all. You have an important role to play in the household of God, just as Eliezer did. Now, you might not play the role of matchmaker like Eliezer. You might not be involved in the romantic lives of people within your church. And that's totally fine. Uh, it's probably for the best, actually. Uh, it's probably a good idea... Uh, to pursue the overall health of the community with the freedom that you have. 
Because if you are not married, you have a lot of freedom. One of the things I recognized very quickly after I got married and, and had kids was my freedom went from being able to do whatever I want whenever I wanted to, being, to having very rare moments of freedom. But with your freedom, if you're single, use it in an honorable and God-glorifying way to build up the community that you love and are a part of. Don't retreat into your own world. God has given you that freedom of movement to serve Him faithfully and to serve others faithfully. Invest your energy into those who are younger. Look for potential discipling relationships. Allow yourself to dare to enter dangerous terrain that married people simply cannot go. If Eliezer was married, he would not be able to go on this journey. He would not be able to risk himself on this journey. Pursue God's kingdom for His glory vigorously now. And when the body of Christ is an all, function, all functioning according to their giftings and their talents, not only are we pursuing the future, but we will begin to establish the future in the here and now for God's glory. My third point, establish the future for God's glory. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold, and garments, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the men. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Well, we see in this that Abraham's name is still well known and respected. For Bethuel, Rebekah's father, gave his approval to the prospect of marriage, and Eleazar the servant lavishes them with many gifts that he has taken, including Rebekah's mother, who was considered worthy of great honor here. And after spending the night, Eleazar wants to leave immediately. And this must have been very distressing for the family because it was unlikely that they would ever see Rebekah again. She's their beloved daughter and sister. 
However, Eliezer is a man on a mission and he isn't there to delay. He isn't there to enjoy hospitality for 10 days with these people. He has a charge from his master and he intends to return as soon as possible. Why? Because Abraham is old and will die soon. And Eliezer wants to get back before this happens. It is now up to Rebecca. After all, it is her choice. It is her choice to go. The family has given approval. Everyone seems okay with it. She can stay with her family or she can undertake this very dangerous journey with a strange man to marry a wealthy guy who she has never met. And many of you listening might be thinking to yourself, who would want to marry a guy that they have never met? And as we've been reading this story, it has fully been a work of the Lord. Both the servant and Rebecca's family have recognized the hand of the Lord in this entire endeavor. So why did she choose to go? Faith. She was willing to step out of her pagan background and follow God. It would have required an immense amount of trust in the Lord, a trust in a Lord, the Lord that she has only heard whispered about in the stories of her great uncle Abraham, but her faith is childlike. It's a dependency on the Lord and a trust that he will provide for her and protect her and prosper her on this dangerous journey, returning back to Abraham's household. And so they call Rebecca in, they ask her, will you go? And she will. She has faith in God. She says her heartfelt goodbyes, but she doesn't go alone. She brings an entourage of her young women. These would be her servants, her closest friends. She's not going entirely alone, but she is saying goodbye to the place that she grew up. God protects them on their journey and they arrive safely back at Abraham's camp. And there they see Isaac. And here we see a little glimpse into Isaac's character, for we haven't really seen that much except perhaps his trust in his father Abraham. And he's out meditating in the field towards evening. And this shows us that he is a man of God. He's praying. He's reflecting on the words of God. Isaac has been raised well, and he has proven himself to follow in the footsteps of his father Abraham before him. He's proven himself to be a godly man and more than a perfect fit for Rebecca. And Rebecca sees him coming and she must have liked what she saw because she immediately puts on a veil when she finds out who he is. And Eliezer tells Isaac everything and the passage without even missing a beat pretty much marries them then and there. The passage seems to gloss over the ceremony and feast that most likely, we're not entirely certain, but most likely would have happened. It doesn't even mention Abraham and what he was doing. Instead, it mentions Sarah. Rebecca is given the tent of Isaac's mother, Sarah. What's going on here? It's symbolic. When Sarah died, she left a massive hole in the community. She left a massive hole in the camp. She was the great matriarch of this family. With her gone, there was no one to take her place. Well, until now. This young woman has just become the new matriarch, the new princess, the eventual queen of God's people. She will be the next woman who will bear the children of promise. And she will fill the hole left by Sarah and so comfort Isaac who was still grieving. He was grieving the loss, not just of his beloved mother, Sarah, but the loss of that feminine spirit and energy within the camp. 
that blessing of God when we saw all the way back with Eve, when God created men and women to perform different roles, but valuable roles. And everyone felt the loss of Sarah in the camp. They valued the impact of such a wonderful woman. But now the camp was graced by the beauty and wisdom of another godly woman. Isaac loved Rebecca, we see here. Such a wonderful phrase. And we must learn from this because all husbands within the church must love their wives, if not in this way, in a much greater way. Because Ephesians 5.25 says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. With this marriage, the future is established. The next generation has taken their place in the promises of God throughout all of history. This has happened with every new generation. One passes away and another comes and the promises of God continues and the promises of God get passed on down through the generations. It's common for older generations to see the new generations and think, oh, is this going to work out? And they see the sin and the wickedness of new generations and they think it might be We might be headed towards tough times, but God raises up for himself leaders. He raises up for himself people to pass on. And the generation that went before Sarah and Abraham, we see Sarah metaphorically, symbolically passing on the baton to Rebecca. The future of God's people becomes established again under the mercy, care, provision and providence of God. All of this ultimately speaks to God and His glory and His name. And the story points beyond just these characters we see. It points beyond Eliezer and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. It points us ultimately to Jesus. And interestingly, we see Jesus in almost every single character here. Like Eliezer, Jesus is an obedient servant who diligently and carefully followed the will of his master, venturing into all sorts of danger for the will of his master. He was an obedient servant. And just like Jesus' servant went after his people, he won for himself a bride. And just like Rebecca, Jesus left the comforts of home and the plans uh, to pursue the plans and purposes of God. And just like Isaac... Jesus loves and establishes his church. This story, while a beautiful story, a real story of God's people being established, points beyond it to the true one who established the church forever. It's a wonderful story. And it points to the ultimate marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb, when Jesus redeems his bride for all eternity, purchased by his blood. And as members of the church, we know that the plans of God are established long ago in the work of the cross of Jesus, established before the foundation of the world, that God would come, man, uh, God in human form in Jesus taking on the sins of the world and dying for the sake of his bride, the church redeeming and loving and rescuing her. For all those who with repentance and faith put their trust in Jesus, they will be saved from judgment and saved from damnation. And they will be found among the children and people of God and go forth into the future. So when we look at the future of this world, 
Do you despair? For there are many reasons to despair. There are many reasons for the character in, the, in this story to despair. And yet they looked ahead to God's plan. They looked ahead to it. They pursued it and they established it. Is that your attitude? Is that your uh, is, is that mark your character? Are you someone that's overcome with fear and worry? Is, is uh, the, the things that are happening in this world causing you to doubt the future of the church because the future of the church is rock solid and resting in the person of Jesus? Jesus looked to the future, he pursued it, and he established it for God's glory so that we too can walk in his path. He purchased with his blood a people of whom we belong to with faith and repentance. And so learn from Jesus as we read Genesis. And so my challenge for you is this. When you get an opportunity, I need you to write three things. How are you looking to the future? What are your plans? What are your goals for God's kingdom? Number two, how are you going to pursue it? What action steps are you going to take? Does it take a radical step of faith like Eliezer of Damascus and stepping out into the unknown? And my last challenge is how will you establish the future for God's glory? How will you act to make sure that this happens? How will you ensure that the future of your family, the future of your life, the future of your church is one that honors and glorifies the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you so much that you give us these wonderful stories in your word for us to learn from. And Lord, how good you are to us that we have access to your inerrant and infallible and most holy of words. Father, I pray for my friends here today that are listening, friends that have been challenged, Lord, I pray that as they go away, Lord, that they would not just um, focus on their own fears and their own trials and their own despair, Lord, but they would make clear, rock-solid plans for the future, that they would look to the future, that they would pursue it, and that they would establish it. We thank you that you love us, Lord. We thank you that you ultimately established all these things through your church and your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for my friends, please Help us as our church moves forward into this community. Would you establish our plans for your glory and for your namesake alone? And it's in the mighty name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.